1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
1: All right, what is up? You're listening to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails, specifically the Versailles Anniversary Project. My name is Zach Twomley and I'm very happy to welcome you here. If you've never listened to the Versailles Anniversary Project before, or VAP as I keep on calling it in shorthand version, because writing those three words all the time takes a while, and I have been writing those three words an awful lot over the last few months, the VAP, Versailles Anniversary Project, Versailles, whatever you want to call it, If you've never listened to it before, make sure to check out the previous 34 episodes. This here is episode 35, and if you've never listened, then you might not understand why exactly we have to listen to Belgium in the first place, as the name of this episode implies. Otherwise... What is when diplomacy fails? Well, it looks at different wars throughout history, but for the last few months we've been looking in-depth at the Paris Peace Conference. It is indeed a whopper sort of project, but the reason why we're able to do it, and the reason why we're able to go into so much detail, is because you guys support this podcast so well. This is a listener-supported podcast, and never is that more obvious than when you're looking at the sheer range of topics on offer here. If this was not my job, there's no way I'd be able to give this project the time and attention to detail it deserves. We're barely even, we're not even halfway there, really. I can kind of see why no one's ever taken this on. Also, the fact that it's a century ago since all of this stuff was happening makes it very relevant, even though, surprisingly enough, people aren't really talking about it. Not enough people know about the Paris Peace Conference, or where the Treaty of Versailles came from. Most people just know that, after the First World War, the Second War happened, and that's that. I'm here to change that. I'm here to make the Paris Peace Conference more well-known, more open, and more accessible to people who may not know anything about it. Hopefully, by now, on episode 35, you know what we're all about. But if you don't, if you've never heard this podcast before, I've been doing this for nearly seven years. But only in the last few years have I been able to do it as my part-time job because of you guys supporting me so well over at patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. If you would like to support this podcast and get some pretty sweet things in return, then go and do that. For one, two, five, or six dollars a month, you guys can support this podcast and get some pretty sweet audio treats in return. A 10 part series on Louis XIV's Arms and Armies? Yes, please. That'll cost you one dollar a month. All these episodes ad free and with the scripts attached? Yes, please. That'll be two dollars a month. An hour of extra content every month, currently looking at the Suez Crisis as part of 1956. Yes please, that'll cost you $5 a month. The privilege of punching your ticket to the delegation game where you can play as a character that you invent or do not invent and play instead, and you go through the Paris Peace Conference yourself in this alternative version of history, which I narrate, I narrate all these exploits, every single Saturday. Yes please, that'll cost you $6 a month. I'm really bowled over with the support you guys have given this podcast. The total on Patreon is gradually climbing up, ever so gradually, and I'm hoping that by the time it's our two-year anniversary on Patreon, we will have reached 300 patrons supporting us. We're nearly there. I think we're on 287 at the moment. So if you would like to throw some money this podcast's way, if you would like to make sure that history thrives and get rewarded for it, then patreon.com is the best place to go. Click on the link in the description. You know the story by now. You may not know the story, on the other hand, of plucky little Belgium. And that's what we're going to look at in this episode. So without any further ado, let's get into this. 3,000 miles from home, an American army is fighting for you the end, that the high ideals for
0: which America stands may endure upon the earth. I earnestly entreat my countrymen to pause before they rush Hitler into this revolutionary change which may well be irretrievable. I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. Well, France and Italy, between them, have made West people to achieve their best and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion, they failed to the war. Oh,
1: You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 35. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, delegates, all, to the 35th episode of Versailles. In the last episode, we continued our coverage of these important February days. These very involved, very weighted February days, as you can see, because the episodes are coming out left, right and centre, pretty much every day for the next few days, and then we... Take a little bit of a breath and roll it back a bit. So don't worry, if you're getting overwhelmed, if you're sort of falling behind, soon we'll be going back and we'll be holding off a little bit from all this content. So you'll have time to catch up then. If, on the other hand, you just want to keep that content coming, then you've come to the right place. We added in some extra bits of clarity on George Clemenceau's character last time. We also looked at the 8th, 9th and 10th of February in more detail. We examined the motives and anxieties of the French premiere as well. We saw that some of the major problems affecting the Allies were at the different meetings. It seemed that they could not agree on how to compel German compliance with the terms of the armistice. And there was great concern that if they couldn't do this, if they couldn't make the Germans see things their way, then they wouldn't be able to compel obedience for the final peace treaty. Because remember, the armistice had to be renewed every single month, and every single month it was up for renewal, the French or otherwise tried to insert new terms. There was great concern over whether or not the Germans would accept these terms whether they would accept the full terms of the armistice in general, or whether they were secretly plotting behind the scenes to renew the war. So different solutions were suggested to answer this challenge. The use of force, using the blockade of the country as leverage, holding up raw materials until they did what they were told, a more gentle approach where people would just talk to each other. All of these potential solutions were debated, with Woodrow Wilson siding with the more idealistic vision of Germany, arguing against the use of force, and the French arguing for the more severe options considering their circumstances. The disagreement over how to proceed created something of a deadlock, so to overcome it, another committee was established, which would provide the impetus to meet again on the 12th of February. In the meantime, though, a range of other questions, from Belgian territorial claims to sorting out the German border conflict with Poland, would have to be considered. In this episode, we're going to leave aside the burning question of complying the Germans for just a wee moment, and let us smolder while we look at the situation in Belgium and her delegation's representation to the Council of Ten on the 11th of February. So pretty much, if you're listening to this on the 11th of February, this was happening on this day 100 years ago. Without any further ado then, let's jump right into the deliberations of the afternoon of the 11th of Feb. Although the war had started in the Balkans, for the West, the war truly began in Belgium. Belgium had been the key to the German Schlieffen Plan, to the French defensive strategy and to British intervention. It had been the location of some of the most infamous crimes which the Germans committed and the so-called Rape of Belgium remains controversial today as a topic for study and reflection. By the second week of February 1919, it did not matter all that much that Belgium had been occupied for virtually the entirety of the war or that she had been neutral before the war broke out. By default, she was one of the Allied powers and now that the Allies had emerged victorious, she had patiently chosen this moment to press her claims at the Council of Ten. Considering the weight of the moment, the intense pressure which the Big Three certainly felt they were under regarding the quarrel of the renewal of the Armistice, and the preparation of the League of Nations Covenant, which would have to be presented within days, the appearance of a Belgian deputation might appear somewhat out of place. Was Belgium's case really important or pressing enough to be discussed now? Time was of the essence, and Woodrow Wilson would be leaving in a few days, couldn't all this wait? As usual though, the explanation for Belgium's appearance for the afternoon of the 11th of February 1919 had less to do with the actual interests of the Allies, and more to do with commitments to a schedule they had made in previous weeks. The French were setting the agenda. That was the French right, because Clemenceau was the chair of all of these meetings. And Clemenceau had proposed to deal with Belgium's territorial claims several days before, and only for the sudden explosion of the Armistice renewal controversy, this had been delayed. You might remember, we mentioned in a few episodes back, that Belgium tried to get in near the end, but that Lloyd George kind of lost it a bit because he said that this hadn't been very well planned. So they put off Belgium for a few days, and now here they were. Now with the armistice issue placed on the long finger until tomorrow, there was something of a vacuum of things to do. After the stormy previous days, the arrival of the Belgians under the leadership of Paul Le Mons would have seemed like something of a vacation. Paul Mons was many things. A Protestant, a Freemason, a professor, a lawyer, a politician but most of all he considered himself a Belgian patriot, and he was determined to achieve some measure of satisfaction for Belgium. To do this, Belgium would absolve herself of the 1839 Treaty, which committed Belgium to a life of perpetual neutrality, and she would side solidly with the Allies. In return, Imons would get some but not all of what he wanted. Slices of Luxembourg and Dutch territory would be handed over, as would German colonies in African Rwanda and Burundi, but the total absorption of Luxembourg and the ceding of the county of Limburg from the Netherlands would not be achieved. Paul Imons was the leader of Belgium's Liberal Party, and he served as Foreign Minister in the coalition headed by the Conservative Belgian Prime Minister, Léon Delacroix. Imons no doubt clung to the 7th of Wilson's 14 points, which had been dedicated entirely to Belgian restoration, and which had stated... Belgium, the whole world will agree, must be evacuated and restored without any attempt to limit the sovereignty which she enjoys in common with all other free nations. No other single act will serve, as this will serve, to restore confidence among the nations in the laws which they have themselves set and determined for the government of their relations with one another. Without this healing act, the whole structure and validity of international law is forever impaired. The mood of expectation and optimism was added to in Belgium when it was learned that Belgium would receive three delegates in the form of representation of the two political parties and one representing just the king. In reality, all three delegates cooperated together, since upon arriving in Paris, the Belgians quickly discerned that they would need all the help they could get. Paulie experience of the harsh reality of the conference began early on with the first plenary meeting all the way back in the 18th of January. The only decision of consequence which was made at that meeting was the nomination of Georges Clemenceau as the president of the conference. This granted Clemenceau significant powers, as we said. He was able to set the agenda of the conference, and Clemenceau was effectively able to micromanage what was discussed because of this. A critical point for Clemenceau was the domination of the great powers over the proceedings. As a point of honour, he believed that France had earned this right to dominate the proceedings, and that she had earned these rights in blood. On the 25th of January, one week later, Clemenceau publicised this goal when he explained the commission-filled structure of the conference. Commissions were to take the brunt of the legwork and were to deal with the major questions including reparations and food relief, but it was how the seats were assigned to the states that sat on these commissions that rubbed polymonds the wrong way. The great powers would have three seats each, while the 22 other minor powers would have to share five seats between them. This was unacceptable to Imons, and to the Serbs and Greeks in particular. The protests, which he let loose over the few days that followed, didn't endear him to Clemenceau, but Imons' loud, articulate and passionate arguments in favour of proper and full representation for the minor powers did strike a chord with his counterparts, and he quickly became something of an unofficial spokesman for the small powers' interests. A significant event took place on the 27th of January, so two days after the second plenary conference, when literally all of the different representatives of the smaller minor powers got together in a commission chaired by Jules Cambon, a prominent French politician and former ambassador to Germany. Jules Cambon could do little more than take the objections of the minor powers into consideration, though of course the minor powers didn't only send out their objections, but much of the meeting at this stage was taken up by the reasoning of the small powers that they should have more representation than they already had been given. Jules Cambon's only took these into consideration because he was not about to bother the tiger with the arguments of the small fry. In 1981, the late, great Paris Peace Conference historian Sally Marks penned the definitive account of Belgian participation in the conference, entitled Innocent Abroad. Sally Marks contends that because of their long history of neutrality before 1914, the Belgian negotiating position was weak and the Belgian diplomatic expertise wasn't particularly impressive either. Belgian negotiators were naive, unsure of where they stood among the larger Allied powers, and single-minded in their convictions that they deserved portions of Luxembourg and the Netherlands as compensation for their wartime experiences. The harrowing Belgian wartime experience notwithstanding, Emans proved to be a skilled, if inflexible, and dogmatic negotiator. As a representative of a minor power, that being Belgium of course, His tenacity and stubbornness predictably rubbed an increasingly busy and impatient Lloyd-George and Clemenceau the wrong way. As Belgium's foreign minister, Imons was also thinking of the post-conference world, and he believed that Belgium should form an integral part of European defence. For this to happen, though, she had to abandon the neutrality which had defined Belgium since her establishment, and to acquire new slices of territory to make the defence of this new status more feasible. Paul Imons opened his address to the Council of Ten on the afternoon of the 11th of February by making an appeal to her past. It was time, Imons argued, to take the last few years into account. Thanks to the German invasion, it was now clear that the old policy of Belgian neutrality was obsolete. Belgium had been an ally, and her soldiers had fought and died against the German invasion. Consequently, following more than four years of occupation, Belgium was a deserving member of the Allied camp. As the minutes record Imons saying... It was the violation of the Treaty of 1839 which brought about the state of war between Belgium and Germany. The regime of neutrality was therefore broken and could not be revived. Neutrality depended on the balance between the five great powers. This balance was now upset. It rested on the equal confidence on the part of Belgium towards the great powers, a confidence which could not now exist. The war had destroyed the foundations of Belgium's political status and economically had ruined the country. After setting the scene, Eamons moved on to the problems with Belgium's status quo. Turning first to geographical issues, Imons unveiled a three-point argument focusing on the River Scheldt. This river constituted a vital waterway for Belgian and French commerce and locomotion, but due to accidents of history and of geography, the mouth of the River Scheldt happened to be in Dutch hands. This meant that if they wanted to, the Dutch could close the mouth of the river, thus severely hampering the utility of the Scheldt trade, and consequently hampering Belgian interests. It was intolerable for the Belgian interests to be so vulnerable, especially during wartime. As one example, the fortress of Antwerp had fallen in 1914, thanks to the Dutch decision to close the Scheldt, which meant no supplies could be brought by river to relieve the fortress. Had the Belgians been in control... Antwerp would have held out for much longer, and Belgian integrity would have been better served. This, at least, was the version of history which Paul Liemann's was spinning. Furthermore, in further instances where the Dutch might be at war but the Belgians neutral, the Dutch would close this route off again, thereby shutting Belgium out from its artery to the lucrative sea trade. This was unfair, and even during peacetime, the Dutch enjoyed extensive rights over the Scheldt, which had effectively starved out Antwerp to the benefit of their own cities like Amsterdam and Rotterdam. Any work which needed to be done at the mouth of the Scheldt River was left to the Dutch, who would often delay or overcharge any administrative efforts, which had the effect of discouraging any work there from progressing at all. It was quite a picture, and the minutes record Mons being particularly demanding after having stated his case, saying... Belgium asked for the free disposal of the river and absolute sovereignty over the western Scheldt as far as the sea, both in times of peace and in times of war. This stream, on the banks of which there was only one Dutch port, must belong entirely to Belgium. It must be free to execute all necessary works appertaining to it. The security of Belgium in the future port of Antwerp required no less. This, moreover, was in accordance with Belgian national sentiment, and in particular with the unanimous desire of naval circles in the country. The best way to assume control over the mouth of the Scheldt was simply to annex the portion of Zeeland, that being the province of Zeeland in the Netherlands, simply to annex that portion of land which was cut off by that very river. To Imons, it was only logical that this sparsely populated, isolated portion of the Netherlands would join Belgium, and a degree of sentiment towards this point of view had existed in the past, only to be extinguished by the war experience. The Dutch royal family had toured the underdeveloped region in 1916 and again in March 1919 so a little bit after this speech had been made as if to send a message to Paul Mons that The Hague very much intended to hold on to the region. Those that are curious about the geographic setup of the region and de demands should track down the map I uploaded in the Facebook group because that should put things in perspective quite nicely. It'll also show you exactly why Paul Imons believed he had a case in the first place. Imons added an additional demand for some territory which included a canal and port which led to Ghent, proclaiming once more Belgium's vital interest and uncompromising insistence of acquiring this land from the Dutch, who it was declared did not really use or need it anyway. The Belgians had paid for much of the work done to the region's canals and small ports, so it was surely only fair that she reap the rewards and not continually be forced to go through Dutch channels. President Wilson answered the Belgian demands with a question. How were the Dutch to be consulted on this issue when they neglected to send any representatives to the conference and when they'd been completely neutral during the war? It was a fair question. It meant that a public debate between the two points of view could not be had and in this instance, it meant that those present in the Quai d'Orsay were only hearing the Belgian perspective sympathetic as he was to Belgium's plight in the past, Wilson felt he could not proceed without considering the other side of the argument. It was here that Paul Emons displayed something of his naivety and inexperience when dealing with such weighted conferences. To the question of how the Dutch were to be contacted, Emons replied vaguely that the Dutch were signatories of the original 1839 treaty and should be present to discuss any changes which were made an answer which suggests that something of Wilson's question was lost in translation. Imons then added that he did not yet know how to convince the Dutch to part with the aforementioned nuggets of territory or sovereignty, adding the weak point that I had thought it right to place before the meeting all elements of the problem, but I leave it to the conference to find the solution. I would point out, however, that Holland had shown latterly that she was disposed to discuss these questions. It was here that Arthur Balfour interjected, representing Britain's head since Lloyd George was back in London. Professing his sympathy with Belgium, as had Wilson, Balfour expressed the very valid point that Belgium could not expect to gain these things from the Dutch without providing some form of compensation for it. Imons scrambled to reply, noting that he would make a suggestion on the nature of compensation at a later stage, but for now he wished to focus on another thing he wanted, the County of Limburg. To cut a long story short, a portion of the right bank of the river Meuse ran in Dutch territory, and through this land, it was feared, Belgian security would be undermined if the Germans sought to invade through it. They would bypass the fortifications of Liège, one of Belgium's most hulking fortresses, and place its garrison in an untenable position. It was noted that in 1914, the Dutch made no effort to defend this slice of land. It was also noted that if the Belgians gained control over this strip, it would undermine the economic prominence of Rotterdam, and the Dutch would be opposed to it. It was now that de Mons turned his attention towards the most important task, that of first negotiating with, and then of persuading the Dutch, that it was in their interest to part with sovereignty over the mouth of the Scheldt, and to hand over their slice of Limburg. Again, he maintained that he didn't know exactly how to converse with the Dutch, but he argued that it was important that the Belgians were seen to put this question up to the conference. Imons then revealed the sticking point. Belgium didn't have anything that the Dutch would want, so how did he propose to persuade them to part with their land or rights? Well, at this point, Imons argued that Belgium might not have anything that the Dutch wanted, but the Germans certainly did. Portions of Prussian Gelderland and Friedland were Dutch-speaking, and they required only a plebiscite to join their Dutch brethren. Eamons pointed out that an irredentist movement in among the Frisians had also emerged in the last few decades, which the Dutch could certainly capitalise upon in the mood of national self-determination. These gains in land would greatly benefit the Dutch security interests as well as the whole of the West, and it appeared to Paul Eamons to offer a solution which would make everyone happy. Paul Eamons neglected to mention that this scheme required Belgium to relinquish or compromise on nothing and that the Dutch would be tasked with then negotiating these releases of land from the Germans, a mission which did not inspire them in the least. Before anyone could scrutinise him too heavily, Imons turned his attention to Luxembourg, and painted a new picture of Belgian cooperation and reliance upon Luxembourg in the recent annals of history. Luxembourg, with 200,000 souls, the same size as Montenegro as it happened, was too small to survive on her own and outside a customs union. Her grand duchy was currently in flux because the old duchess had abdicated, her sister had taken over, and her government wasn't formed. As soon as her people were informed that a union with France was not forthcoming, Imons claimed that the Luxemburgers would agree to a closer union with Belgium. Interestingly, Imons waited for a while before using the term union, preparing instead the term closer relations. When asked point-blank whether he believed a referendum on union with Luxembourg was what he wanted, Paulimons answered in the negative, conveniently arguing that a referendum would not gauge the opinion of the people accurately at this moment. As the Allies took a breath to respond, Paulimons jumped to another few nuggets of land that he wanted, places called Malmedy and Morissette, two small enclaves where ethnic Belgians resided. These regions, constituted of Walloons, had been taken by Prussia in 1815 and should be returned, Imons said. And in conclusion, Imons added that, I hope I have succeeded in convincing the meeting that these treaties must be revised and that the Belgian claims are legitimate. Belgium had demanded no guarantees when she took up arms. She had done her whole duty, but she had suffered grievously and was still suffering. Her industry was ruined and she could not revive for many months. Belgium is not asking for the price of her services, and she was animated by no spirit of conquest or imperialist ambitions. All Belgium asked, from the great allied and associated powers, was the conditions necessary to ensure the future and prosperity of the country. So how well had Paul done in persuading the Allies to see things his way? Well, certainly his appearance was something of a spectacle, and it was absolutely a change from the previous day's wrangling over the terms of the armistice. If they were aghast at the assertiveness and shamelessness of the Belgian demands, then Clemenceau, Balfour or Wilson didn't show it. As it happened, his direct approach served him well, and he would acquire some gains for Belgium interests. Yet these were largely third or fourth on the list of aims, and much of Imanza's European goals, with respect to the Dutch lands in particular, were not fulfilled. In examining the fate of Imans' mission to the Paris Peace Conference, the historian Sally Marks noted that while Imans did enjoy some success, he was mostly overwhelmed by the confusing structure of the conference, and he was far from the only one. Commissions, committees, councils, the conference itself seemed to serve more like a host for a range of other bodies, and it was never completely clear where the more important institutions resided. What was appreciated was that the great powers had the final say, yet even this was a fact fully acknowledged by the great powers only. Appearances were maintained of a conference where everyone had a role and a voice, but during the plenary conferences, where all delegates were assembled, there still remained a seniority and supremacy among the greater powers. Those minor powers that sat on the small commissions and committees were often used merely as advisory boards rather than executive councils that could make practical or actual lasting decisions. The actionable information that they produced was useful, but at the end of the day it soon became apparent that the Big Five possessed the real power. Unfortunately for Belgium, it seems that Paul Imons realised this fact too late. As Sally Marks wrote, Belgium's prominent role in the commissions did much for the national reputation, but very little for her foreign policy. Imons had fought for representation in the commissions in the belief that they would have the power of decision, but they did not and Imanz was mistaken about the nature of power. As he discovered in time, the promise that Belgium would be permitted to participate in the peace conference had clearly been fulfilled, but not in any meaningful sense. The commissions did a great deal of valuable work, but they only made recommendations. Decisions were made by the Supreme Council, consisting of the Big Four, or occasionally Five or Three, and then referred for final drafting to various Great Power Committees, on which neither Belgium nor any other small state had representation. As a consequence, the Belgian delegation had no share in drafting any of the clauses concerning Belgium. More importantly, it had little or no voice in these decisions. The great states had the power that Belgium so conspicuously lacked, and accordingly, they had the power of decision. This fact was not at first clear to the Belgian delegation, and so initially it was much gratified by Belgium's conspicuous representation on the commissions, thinking that Belgium's special status had been universally acknowledged and that her membership on so many commissions would ensure her participation in decision-making. In case you were wondering, yes, there were a lot of committees and commissions popping up during this stage of the conference, and again, yes, those present did think it was a tad strange. It seemed that during every discussion, on every topic, the solution was to create another committee or commission to provide clarity in decisions. Here I am to be attached to the Greek committee as a technical adviser, whatever on earth that may mean. This was how Harold Nicholson reacted to the news that a Greek committee existed and he would be advising its deliberations. Nicholson added that the Greek premier, Venizelos, who we will meet in great detail in the future, was eager to hear what this committee decided upon. Venizelos very anxious to hear about the Greek committee, Nicholson wrote, not commission. Air Crow, being a man of verbal exactitude, will not allow me to call it a commission. My dear Nicholson, Air Crow says, a commission is a body which is dispatched to a definite place. A body that sits at the centre is a committee. Anyhow, our committee meets in the afternoon at the Quai d'Orsay at 4 p.m. on the 12th of February. Jules Cambon, former French ambassador to Germany, is chairman. We discuss northern Epirus. Nobody wishes to show their hand and Cambon tells us all to go away and come back with something on a map. As ever, Nicholson's human account of these deliberations helps to add a bit of colour to the conference, but it also shows that creating a commission was very far from a silver bullet. It should come as little surprise that Imanza's claims were recommended to a commission, but this shouldn't be viewed simply as a method of kicking the can down the road. The Allies, particularly the French, were of the opinion that Belgium and Luxembourg represented critical pillars in the Western defence. In a little more than a year after the conference, the French and the Belgians would actually sign a military accord linking the concerns and intel of the two countries' general staffs until 1936, when the Belgians determined then to pursue a distinctively Belgian policy at precisely the wrong time. There was something eerily prophetic about the vision of disaster which the French High Command imagined, should the Belgian and Rhine border lines be violated again in the future. If an independent Rhineland of some kind could be established and the Low Countries could stick together, then the borders of France and the survival of the West against the Germans in the future would also be guaranteed. If, on the other hand, this defensive line fragmented and each power determined to go their own way, then there was no doubt about the catastrophe which would follow. This very disaster was played out in summer 1940 when the German army overran the defences of the Low Countries and of France within fewer than three months. At the London Conference in the first few days of December 1918, the French and Italians came to visit London to prepare some groundwork for the conference in Paris. And it was there that the topics of an independent Rhineland and a Belgium tied to France were raised, supported by an apocalyptic vision of what would befall Europe if cooperation between the Allies was not baked into European relations, as Lloyd George recalled of this London conference in early December 1918. If there was no material barrier set up and no special precautions taken, the invasion of France, Belgium and Luxembourg might again be undertaken. More particularly, the Belgian coast would be easier for the enemy to reach, for they now realised the importance of it and would endeavour to cut England off from France. The natural barrier against such an invasion was the Rhine. With this agglomeration of territories, namely France, Belgium and Luxembourg, properly organised in a military sense, it would probably be practicable to hold the line of the Rhine. If, however, the line of the Rhine was forced by a surprise attack, there would be repetition of the War of 1914, and in this case it was absolutely essential that Great Britain should lend her assistance, otherwise Germany would become the master of the whole of the West. Hence it was essential that there should be a permanent mutual assistance between all of the countries of the West. France, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Rhinelands, left of the river and Great Britain all organised for the defence of the Western Front. The issues of defence and deterrence were central to the quarrel about the German problem and its armistice. Now that the Belgians had been humoured and Paul returned to his many commissions, The Allies could focus on what was the final of their meetings before the Covenant of the League of Nations was presented to the plenary conference on the 13th of February and Woodrow Wilson returned to the United States shortly thereafter. The 12th of February was thus an important day and it contained an excruciatingly busy schedule as the Supreme War Council met in the morning and the evening while the Council of Ten met in the afternoon. This was the result of effectively leaving everything till the last minute but there was no time for, I told you so. The commission in charge of finding some kind of agreeable solution to the armistice renewal controversy had had the necessary time to deliberate, and by now it was hoped they really should be ready with their decisions. So all involved were prepared to gather for the first of three meetings at 11am on the 12th of February, with the hope that, this time, they could finally get somewhere.